Lessons from the Upper Room. Tonight I want to talk to you about extraordinary promises for extraordinary living. And here's my thesis. I'm going to give it to you on the front end. I believe God wants us to live extraordinary lives, and I believe God has given us the resources to live extraordinary lives. But most Christians live very ordinary lives. There is not that touch of the supernatural on their life. There are not things that are happening in their lives that are kingdom-focused and, and kingdom-expanding. And so I want to talk to us about how we can live extraordinary lives. And God has given us, in John chapter 14, some extraordinary promises that we can cling to and build our lives upon that will help us to live that kind of life. And so if you want to live an extraordinary life for the glory of God, tonight is for you because there are some rock-solid promises here that are just, they're really just, they're breathtaking. I mean, I've been studying John chapter 14 this week, and it is incredible, the promises that are in this chapter. And so I can't wait to, to share them uh, with you uh, tonight. And there are four, four extraordinary, uh, no, strike that, there are five. You need to strike that out in your notes. Does it say four promises in your notes? Right, five. Five extraordinary promises in your uh, notes. I made a late addition. Didn't make it into the the, the handouts. Five extraordinary promises that I want to walk through with you. Just just a, a quick word of context. Uh, remember, Jesus is in the upper room. John chapter 13, he washes the disciples' feet as a testimony of what it looks like to serve others, to put others ahead of yourself, and to remind them about th- their need for sanctification. He said, you're already clean because the word I spoke to you, speaking of their justification, their salvation. But every now and then you need to get your feet washed. Even as Christians, we stumble sometimes and we sin. And when we do that, we need God to cleanse us from our sin. And so he's using the foot washing as a metaphor for our need for uh, spiritual cleansing in our lives as believers. And then in John chapter 14, he shares with them some promises about heaven at the beginning of that chapter. A couple of weeks ago, I shared those promises uh, with you. Uh, you can listen to it on the uh, internet if you want to do that. But we talked a lot about heaven and how the promises of heaven give us comfort and strength today. How our hearts do not have to be troubled because of the promises that God, uh, Christ makes to us at the beginning of John chapter 14. And we closed that section by looking at what uh, Jesus said to Philip in verse 6. He said, when Philip asked, how do we know the way? You're talking about heaven and eternity. And how do we know the way to heaven? How do we make sure we're going to get to heaven? And, and Jesus answers in verse 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So he speaks here of his exclusivity. There's only one way to be saved, only one way to heaven. And, and we're going to pick up right after that statement here in John chapter 14. So look what it says in verse 7. If you had known me, Jesus says, you would have known my Father also. From now on, uh, you do know him and have seen him. In other words, Jesus says, I've come to present the Father to you. And you've seen me, you've seen the Father, because I exhibit the same characteristics of the Father by what I do, what I say. I am his Son, he is my Father. We are... Two persons of the one Godhead. The third person, of course, is the Holy Spirit. And, and when you see me, you see the Father. You, you know what the Father's all about by looking at me. And he says there in verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? 
Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? In other words, if you look at me, if you know me, you see the Father and you've been brought into a relationship with the Father. And so stop just asking to see the Father with your fleshly eyes and understand that through me you can see the Father with eyes of faith and know the Father as well. Verse 11, believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So we see here that, that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have the same nature. The Father's in Jesus, Jesus in the Father, the same characteristics, the same attributes. That's what's being said there in that verse But then he says something really astounding in verse 12. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, now watch this, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Here's the first promise for extraordinary living. Greater works. Greater works. That's the first blank in your notes. Greater works. Jesus says, if you believe in me, then... There in verse 12, said, If you believe in me, sorry, I lost my place. He says, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. Now, I want you to say a quick word about conditional and unconditional promises. Some of the promises in the Bible are unconditional. God's just going to do it because he said he's going to do it. Most of the promises in the Bible are conditional. God is going to fulfill his promise based upon how we respond or what we do, or if we hold our end of the bargain up, so to speak. So let me give you an example of an unconditional promise. At, at the end of the, the flood, after God has flooded the earth and Noah and his family get off the ark, you remember God uh, puts a rainbow in the sky and he says, this is my covenant with you, I will never destroy the earth through flooding again. Remember that promise? That's unconditional. Doesn't matter what you do, doesn't matter what I do, God has promised he's never going to flood the earth again, period. So no matter what you think about it or what you do or what you say or what you believe, God has said, I will never flood the earth again, and, and, and he'll keep that promise. That's an unconditional promise. Another unconditional promise is when Jesus said, I will come again. He's going to, he's going to return. Nothing you and I can do about it. Nothing we can do to stop it. He's going to return. That's an unconditional promise. But most of the promises in the Bible are conditional promises. There's a condition that needs to be fulfilled on our part for the promise to come to fruition. And all five of the promises we're going to look at tonight have a condition. So what's the condition for this first promise? Belief in Jesus and obedience. Belief in Jesus and obedience. In other words, if you want To see God use your life for greater works than even what Jesus did on this earth. Then you've got to believe in him and obey him. So wait, where do you get that from? Well, look what it says in verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do. And so notice the condition here. You've got to believe in Christ for this promise to be applied to you. This promise of doing great things for God is only for those who believe in Christ, have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so, listen to me, you'll never be used mightily by God for His purposes and His glory if you don't know Jesus. Which, you know, it's interesting. There are a lot of people 
that are very faithful religious people, churchgoers. They do good deeds. They do, they do different works in the community. But they don't believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And they're religious, and, and they're doing religious things, but they're really not serving God. They're really not being used by God to impact a lost and dying world. The only way you will see great works done in and through your life is if you know Jesus. That's the first thing. And not only do you need to know him personally, but you need to obey him. Look what it says. He says, Greater works than these will he do. Everyone say do. And he says, And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Early in verse 12, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. So notice that word do. In other words, if you want to be used to see great things happen for the glory of God, you got to do something. Right? It's not just enough to, to just be saved. you gotta, you got to do something. And see, a lot of folks enjoy the blessings of salvation. I'm forgiven. I'm not going to, to, to hell when I die. I'm going to heaven. I know that God is with me. He'll provide for me. He'll protect me. He'll watch over me. Oh, it is so great to be saved. And a lot of people marinate in the blessings of salvation, but they don't do anything. They don't, they don't actively serve God. And you'll never be used by God to do greater things than Jesus did when he was on the earth if you don't do something. you got to obey. you got to respond to what God has told you to do. So wait, what are some of these things God's told us to do? Well, he's told us to make disciples, right? Matthew 20, every one of us are called to make disciples, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that, we've, that, that Christ has commanded us. He's with us to the end of the age. So we're called to make disciples. We're called to love our neighbor. We're called to love God. I mean, we could go on all the, the commandments, but we've got to do something. We've got to actually get up and do something. You've heard the old phrase, you can't stand on the promises if you're, if you can't stand on the promises if you're sitting on the premises. And, and, and this promise of doing greater things than even Jesus did on the earth is not something that is yours to claim if you don't do anything. You've got to do something. You've got to serve. You've got to obey, right? So this is a conditional promise to see things happen in and through your life greater than what Jesus did when he was on the earth for those that believe in Jesus and obey. But here's the big question. I know you're all thinking it. How in the world... Can we be used by God to do greater works than Jesus? Because we know the Gospels, right? I mean, Jesus walked on water. He raised people from the dead. He healed leprosy. I mean, we could go, what? So how in the world can you and I be used to see things happen that are even greater than what Jesus Christ experienced during his time on the earth? Well, I think there are two ways that our works can be greater than the works of Jesus. First of all, greatness in era, E-R-A. Greatness in era. In other words, our works are greater works than Jesus' works when he was on the earth because of the era in which we live, the, the, the moment in salvation history in which we uh, live. Let me say it like this. This side of the cross... All right, we're 2,000 years on this side of the cross. This side of the cross is the most exciting era in human history. 
Now, the, the sixth hour, uh, 4,000 years before Jesus Christ died upon the cross was an exciting time because God had made the promises and, and foreshadowed the promises and made prophecies. And everyone knew that a Savior, or people knew that studied God's Word, that a Savior was coming, that a Messiah was coming. And so promises were made before the cross. But now that Jesus Christ has come and died and risen from the dead, His promises have been kept. And the work of redemption has been completed. Remember what Jesus said right before He breathed His last on the cross? He says, Telestai, it is what? It is finished. I'm accomplishing the work of salvation. And so we get to live on this side of the cross. Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world. He defeated death when he rose from the grave. He's alive today and he is working in human history to bring the nations to himself. This is the most exciting time in human history in which to live. You ever wondered if you had the choice when you'd want to live? Another era, another time period, another decade, another century. I've, I've thought those kind of things before. And there are certain things that interest me and, and, and things I think would be neat. But I want you to understand that, that we live in the middle of the most exciting era in human history. Why? Because we get to see the finished work of Christ applied to soul after soul after soul after soul. And so it's greatness in era. Also, the greatness here is greatness in scope. Greatness in scope. Jesus' earthly ministry was focused on a relatively small number of people in one region of the world. His earthly ministry was focused on a relatively small number of people in one region of the world. So Jesus, as far as we know, never never got on a boat and sailed across the Mediterranean to Asia Minor, right? There's no record of him doing that. Or to, to Italy or, or, or to Greece or wherever. He, 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 his life was confined to a, a relatively small geographic area, the, the, Pal- the Palestine region of the world. And, and when it was all said and done, how many were faithfully praying, waiting for the pouring out of the Spirit in Acts chapter 1? How many? Do you remember how many followers were praying together in the upper room before Pentecost? How many? 120. 120 believers were, were, were in that upper room. There are more than 120 people on this campus tonight. And so you look at, you look at Jesus, small geographic area, when he was finished, relatively small number of people. Does that mean he didn't have impact? No, that's not what it means at all. He, he, he began the work that would explode at Pentecost. But when you look at his, his three years of public ministry, his, his ministry was limited to a geographic area to a certain number of people, relatively small number of people. But we get to see Acts 1.8. We get to see the gospel spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. And to illustrate this, think about the day of Pentecost. Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost, filled the Spirit, he preached a sermon, and how many people got saved on that day? 3,000 folks. And so what, were the 3,000 people more valuable than the 120 people that followed Jesus? Were they? No. They're all souls, right? 
But in terms of scope, more people got saved on that one day. As Christ is directing his work, no longer bound by physical location, but he's directing his work from heaven. And so the works that we live out for the glory of Christ have the potential to be greater than even the works Jesus did, and the greatness is in terms of scope. We can impact more geographic area, more people than Jesus did during his time on this earth. So let me sum it up like this. We get to be a part of seeing the finished work of Christ applied to individual lives. Write that down. Individual lives as the gospel spreads to every people group in the power of the Holy Spirit. We get to be a part of seeing the finished work of Jesus applied to individual lives as the gospel spreads to every people group in the power of the Spirit. Hey, real quick, let's just a little, little 101 here. What's a people group? What's a people group? Anybody know what a people group is? I use the terminology all the time. What do we mean when we say people group? Do we mean the people of Belgium? Do we mean the people of Uganda? Are we talking about a, a, a geopolitical entity? Is that what we mean when we say, say people group? What do you think? Yes or no? Not sure. They want you to go and tell us, Wade. People defined by language and culture. So, good answer, Beth. Ready for that. Um, and so, a, a geopolitical nation like Uganda can have many people groups. Different pockets of people that have a common language and culture. That makes sense? And so... The promise of Scripture is, is that there will be people from every tongue around the throne in heaven, right? That means the gospel make it every, not just every nation, by the way, we count nations, you know, Belgium, Burundi, but it will make it every people group. And so you and I have the privilege of living in this era of seeing the finished work of Christ applied to every people group on the face of the earth. God is doing that right now in human history, and he's using his people to do it. Isn't that exciting? And so, in that sense, the works that we are used by God to do are greater than the works that Jesus performed while he was on the earth. And so, here's the first extraordinary promise for extraordinary living. Greater works. Greater works. If you believe in Jesus and you obey God will use you to perform works that are greater in scope than what Jesus performed when he was on this earth. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? Can you, I mean, that is, that's breathtaking, is it not? doesn't mean that we can go walk on water, all right? If you don't believe that, just go try walking across the lake when you get done tonight. It speaks of impact. speaks of impact, all right? Now, here's the second extraordinary promise for extraordinary living. Answered prayer. Answered prayer. And to be honest with you, I don't, I, I don't feel like I've really got my heart and mind around this verse yet. I've, I've studied it for years and read it for years, and I, I, still don't, I, I still don't know if I've gotten it yet. Look what it says in John chapter 14, verse 13. He says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And just to reiterate, he says... Verse 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. That is a breathtaking, extraordinary promise, isn't it? 
If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, here's the condition for answered prayer. If you want your prayers to be answered, and I think you do, here's the condi- this is a conditional promise. It's got to be prayer in Jesus' name. That's the kind of prayer that these promises answer here. It says it very clear, verse 14, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Not if you ask me anything, but if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. So he's speaking here of answered prayer. These verses speak of the amazing untapped potential of prayer. The amazing untapped potential of prayer. What are the things that God is waiting to do in and through your life, your family, your church, if you would only but ask in Jesus' name? What are the things that are not happening, that could be happening, if you were to ask? You know, God is, God is sovereign. He's working out His purposes for His good will and His good pleasure. But God works through means. And one of the means that God has chosen to use is our prayers. Breathtaking, isn't it? And Jesus gives us this, this snapshot into the, 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 the potential of prayer. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, immediately when I read a verse like this, I want to start kind of explaining it away, don't you? I want to kind of say, well, if this is this and that and this and that. And I kind of want to explain it away. And there are some biblical things we need to understand about prayer as we interpret this verse. But, but, but the danger is, is that we explain away prayer. Does that make sense? The danger is, is that we just explain it away and, and just don't ask. And don't ask God for big things in Jesus' name. There, there's, listen to me. There are some wonderful verses on prayer and books on prayer. I'm reading a book on prayer right now. Wonderful book. Um, it's called, um, so good I can't remember the title. Richard Pratt, uh, um, praying, it's got prayer in the title. But anyway, it's a really good book. And, 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 and it's, there's, so many, there's so many aspects and facets to prayer uh, so much to glean and understand, but there's always going to be mystery when it comes to prayer. The fact that, that we can communicate with God and we ask and God responds to our prayers, there's mystery in that, is there not? There's mystery in that. And so we've got to be careful to, to just be so hurried to start explaining away this verse and, and, and maybe just start taking Jesus at his word and maybe just start asking him for stuff in his name. And let him sort it all out. Amen? And so, this verse, these verses speak of the amazing untapped potential prayer. The reason I say untapped potential is because most people don't consistently pray. Even in the body of Christ, and there are a lot of reasons we could do a whole sermon on why people don't pray more. Busyness, um, uh, apathy, uh, self-dependence, which is the biggest reason. You know, if you don't pray, what you're saying is basically, God, I can handle this. I don't need you. And, and, and most of us don't pray more because we're pretty dependent. We think we can handle life on our own. And so people don't pray. And it, there's untapped potential when, when God's people don't pray. Now, let's, let's think for a moment about what it means to pray in Jesus' name. Because that's pretty important, right? Because he said, if you pray in my name, I'll do it. So what does it mean to actually pray in Jesus' name? Well, let me give you four thoughts here 
that'll help us to understand this and hopefully give us more confidence in our prayer lives. Number one, praying in Jesus' name means we understand that he provides the access to God. We understand that he provides the access to God. Look what it says in verse 6. Jesus said to him, to Philip, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father that's in relationship and also in prayer. You, you can't come to the Father. You can't have a relationship with God where he'll listen to you without Jesus. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so the reason we need to pray in Jesus' name is because when we pray in Jesus' name, we're recognizing the fact that we can never even pray were it not for Jesus. This relationship where we're children of God, he's our father, inviting us to pray and ask, it would never even be available were it not for Christ, right? The only way you can have God as your father is through Jesus Christ. And that, so that's the only way that prayer is available to you. We understand that he provides the access to God. Remember when Jesus Christ breathed his last, Matthew records, that the temple veil was torn in two from top to bottom. God did that. The reason he did that was to signify, now, because of the shed blood of my son, because he paid the penalty for the sins of the world, now there's access to me. If anyone will place their faith in Christ, his blood will be applied to their account, their sins will be washed away, and now they can come into my presence, listen to this, anytime they want to, and stay as long as they want to. That's why the veil's torn in two. He was, he was signifying that. And so remember, before, before the cross, only one person a year could go into the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, which symbolized the presence of God. High priest, once a year, he could go in there. But when the veil was torn in two, God was saying, now, if you are under the blood of my son, if you are saved, if your sins have been forgiven, if you've been washed in the blood, now you can come into my very presence anytime you want and stay as long as you want. Listen, how's your prayer life? Now that you can go into God's presence anytime you want to and stay as long as you want to, how's your prayer life? How is it? Do you take advantage of this amazing privilege of spending time in the Holy of Holies? Spending time in the presence of the God of the universe. I'm talking about more than just prayer before your meals here, even though that's important. I'm talking about you spending time with your Father. Listening, talking, worshiping, repenting, praying interceding, supplicating, praying. And so we pray in Jesus' name because we understand He provides the access to God. Number two, we pray in Jesus' name because it means we realize that prayer is not based upon our merit, but His. This is important. We understand that God sees us as His child, and He answers our prayers not because we're good, but because Jesus paid it all for us. And not only did Jesus wash away our sins, but Jesus imputed his righteousness to our account. He gave us his perfection as a gift. And so you might say that we are robed in the righteousness of Christ. And now when God the Father looks at us, he sees us like he sees his son. Positionally, 
We are righteous. Positionally, we are perfect in God's eyes. So that's why I pray in Jesus' name. Because we come to him, he answers us, not based upon our goodness, but upon the merit of his son. Have you heard this song? I just love it. I bought it the other day on iTunes. Uh, it's by Mercy Me. It's called Flawless. Have you heard the song Flawless? It, next time you're, you listen to radio, K-Love or whatever, and the song Flawless comes on, listen to it because it's a song, it's a catchy song, but it's about imputed righteousness. No matter the bumps, no matter the bruises, the cross has made you flawless. And I heard that and I thought, wow, a song about imputed righteousness. Awesome. And so it's a good song. So, so we, we pray in Jesus' name because we understand that if God blesses us and God answers us and God responds to us, it's not because we're good. It's because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, right? We understand the grace in prayer. Let me give you this story as an example. R.A. Torrey, a great preacher of old, had been in Melbourne, Australia for a series of meetings. And one day as he went up onto the platform to speak, a note was put into his hands which read, Dear Dr. Torrey, I'm in great perplexity. I've been praying for a long time for something that I'm confident is according to God's will, but I do not get it. I've been a member of the Presbyterian Church for 30 years, have tried to be a consistent one all the time. I've been superintendent in the Sunday school for 25 years and an elder in the church for 20 years. And yet God does not answer my prayer and I cannot understand it. Can you explain it to me? So he gives this note on the the platform as he's walking up to preach. Tori took the note to the platform and, 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 and read it out loud. And then he answered like this. It is perfectly easy to explain it. This man thinks that because he has been a consistent church member for 30 years, a faithful Sunday school superintendent for 25 years, and an elder in the church for 20 years, that God is under obligation to answer his prayer. Tori goes on to say, He is really praying in his own name. And God will not hear our prayers when we approach him in that way. We must, if we would have God answer our prayers, give up any thought that we have any claims upon God. There's not one of us who deserves anything from God. If we got what we deserved, every one of us would spend eternity in hell, right? But Jesus Christ, Tori says, has great claims on God. And we should go to God in our prayers, not on the ground of any goodness in ourselves, but on the ground of Jesus Christ's claims. That's a good answer, isn't it? You think just because you've been a member of the church and served here and served there that God is obligated to answer your prayer. Listen, if God ever answers our prayer, it's grace. We don't deserve answered prayer. It's grace, and it's not because we're good. It's based upon the merit of His Son. So that's why we pray in Jesus' name. I I don't pray a long prayer and say, uh, and God, I give you this prayer in the name of Wade. That'd be ridiculous, wouldn't it? What does Wade bring to the table? Right? I say, God, I pray to you in Jesus' name. It's his merit. It's his goodness, not mine. But there's another reason we pray in Jesus' name. I believe when we pray in Jesus' name, we recognize his power. Did you notice what he said in verses 13 and 14? This is interesting. Jesus says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. This I will do, he says. And then in verse 14, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. So Jesus is saying, I will be the agency that carries out the answer to your prayer. It will be my power 
that is brought to bear on your situation. Jesus takes ownership, doesn't he? If you pray in my name, I will do it. It will be my power brought to bear on your life. And so when we pray in Jesus' name, we're saying, it's your power, Jesus. We need you. I, I, I can't do it. I can't figure it out. I need you. I need you to work. I need you to move. I need you to answer. That's why we pray in Jesus' name. But there's a final reason we pray in Jesus' name. It's because we desire God's glory. Look what he says in verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Why? That the Father, watch this, may be glorified in the Son. So, question, look at me for a moment. Why does God answer prayer? Answer the question. So the Father will be glorified in the Son. God answers prayer for the glory of His great name. And so that helps us to understand, doesn't it? Answer prayer, unanswer prayer. When does God answer? When does He doesn't? When does He say yes, no, wait? You know, what we do is we pray in Jesus' name and we trust that God will move in accordance with that prayer if it is, if it is for the glory of his great name. When we pray in Jesus' name, we're saying, God, I want you to be glorified. And so I'm putting this, this in your hands. You're the one that decides how to answer it. We pray in Jesus' name because we desire God's glory. So, for example, I've shared this with you before, the mystery of prayer. Let's say that a, a farmer uh, has his crops in the field and there's a drought and he really needs rain. And On Saturday night, he's praying, Lord, would you send rain to water my crops so I can get a harvest and support my family? Okay, good prayer request, right? The same time, across town, there's an elderly Sunday school teacher, and she's having a picnic for her nine-year-old Sunday school class after church the next day. She says, God, would you you stop it? Would Would you keep it from raining? Give us good conditions so I can have this picnic and share Jesus with the friends they bring to the picnic. Now, aren't you glad that decision's not up to you? How will God answer that? In whichever way brings him the most glory. He's the one that decides all that and how, and how it's all going to play out in the end. We pray in Jesus' name, we put it in his hands, and we trust that he moves in response to our prayers, ultimately for the glory of his great name. Does that make sense? All right, so there's this, this mystery in prayer, but we've got to learn to just take Jesus at his word, okay? Instead of trying to figure it all out, we've got to just say, Lord, I'm asking you to do this, whatever it is, for the glory of your name, in the name of Jesus. I remember, um, it's, it's been a, a ways back, but I was talking to my family, and, and we were praying for someone that was really critically ill. And we prayed as a family that God would heal this person. And so, even as we're praying the prayer, Pastor Wade, in the back of his head, is thinking, now how am I going to explain this if the person dies? And, and how am I going to, you know, and so I, even as I'm praying, I'm thinking, well, it's probably not going to work out the way we're praying, and so how am I going to be able to be a parent through this and explain this to them and help them walk through the theology of it all? And, 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 and in my mind, my mind's racing with excuses as to how I'm going to explain God answering the prayer Instead of just by simple faith asking God to do something. See the difference there? Instead of just trying to figure it out, God's big, God's big, He can figure, He can handle all that. Instead of just trying to figure it all out, 
and explain everything, why not just take Jesus at his word and ask him to move in our lives, to move in our loved ones' lives, to move in our church, to move in our nation, to move in our world in the name of Jesus, trusting that he will respond. He will do what we ask. Won't you try this week, the remainder of this week, won't you try just taking Jesus at his word and just praying some big, God-saturated, God-glorifying prayers in the name of Jesus and see what God does. Won't you try it? And take Jesus at his word. And so the first promise is a promise of greater work. Second promise is a promise of answered prayer. The third promise for extraordinary living is a divine helper. I spent way too much time on those first two points. So we're going to speed up. A divine helper. A divine helper. Look what Jesus says in John 14, 15. Now remember, he's preparing them to live the Christian life without him physically present in their life. And he says there, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. And so here Jesus promises a divine helper. Now there's a condition here. How can we know that this promise is for us? How can we know that the divine helper that Jesus offered is going to help us? What did you notice? What he said there in verse 15? He said, I'm sorry, verse 16. He said, I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And so here's the condition of receiving a helper from the Lord. You've got to be a follower of Christ. He said, the world can't receive him. So if you're outside of Christ, if you're in the world, if you're, if you're lost and in your sins, if you've never been saved, never been born again, this promise is not for you. If you want the helper that Christ promises in this passage to be a, a daily reality in your life, you've got to be a follower of Christ. That's the condition. Now, here's the question. Speaking here of the Holy Spirit, of course, as we unpack this passage, but two questions about the Holy Spirit. First of all, what does the Holy Spirit do. Now remember, Holy Spirit's third person of the Godhead. The, the doctrine of the Trinity is there's one God in essence and nature existing in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So wait, that's a contradiction. No, the one and three are not referring to the same thing. One is speaking to his essence, his characteristics. The, the, the three refers to the persons who possess the essence of Godness. So it's not a contradiction. It's, it's just what the Bible teaches. And so the, the Holy Spirit is God. The third person of the Godhead. Now, what does he do for us? How does he help us? Well, look what it says there in verse 16. I will ask the Father. He will give you another helper. There's a clue into what the Holy Spirit does for us in that word, helper. The the word there is parakletos. And it literally means called alongside to one's aid. That's what the word means. That's how they used it in the first century. And so... If, 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 if someone called you alongside of them to help them do something, you would be their parakletos. You would be their helper, called alongside of them to help them in their task. This word could be translated helper as it is in the ESV. It could be translated advocate, which is how it's translated in 1 John 2, 2, when the Bible says we have an advocate with the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is our advocate, our great high priest, but the Holy Spirit is also an advocate for us, a parakletos. The, the word can be translated encourager, 
or comforter or exhorter or counselor or instructor. So the question is, what does the Holy Spirit do? Is the Holy Spirit our helper, advocate, encourager, comforter, exhorter, counselor, or instructor? The answer is yes. He's all of those. The, the, the choice of this word is sheer genius. It's a beautiful word. It's a powerful word. And the fact that Jesus uses this word to refer to the Holy Spirit and his role in our life is, is just really beautiful. It's a powerful word with so many connotations. And so let me just sum it up like this. We're going fast. The Holy Spirit helps us to live in obedience and on mission for the glory of God. So whatever you need to be obedient, whatever you need to be on mission for for Christ, for the glory of God, the Holy Spirit will be that for you. He will help you to obey. He will help you to serve. He will help you to go. He will help you to share. He will help you to make disciples. He'll give you wisdom. He'll give you strength. He'll give you correction. He will will help you. He'll be with you. He'll never leave you. And Christ said, it's expedient that I go away because when I go away, you will have this new covenant experience of the Holy Spirit in your life. A divine helper. Now here's the question. How do we experience the presence of the Holy Spirit? Jesus promised he'd give give him to us. How do we experience the presence of the Holy Spirit? Well, look what it says in verse 17. He says, I'm speaking here, the helper of the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So he's saying here, the Holy Spirit dwells with them in a special way. He's with the disciples now, his followers. He's helping them. He's empowering them. But there's, there, there's going to be a, a new experience of the Spirit, which I believe happened on the day of Pentecost, where the Spirit would be in them and permanently in them. If you look at the Old Testament, you see the Spirit coming and going at certain times. And there's a lot of debate about this, the role of the Spirit in the Old Testament. We don't have time to get into that tonight. But, but there's something different about the new covenant experience of the Holy Spirit. We don't know exactly what it is. There's some mystery of the Old Testament work of the Spirit. But there's something different for those on this side of the cross. And here's what we know. We know that if you're a Christian, at the moment of conversion, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, came to take up residence in your life. He's in you. He lives in you. And that's how we experience the Holy Spirit. He, he's dwelling in us. He's made his home in us. And so if you are a follower of Christ, Christ has given you the Spirit as a divine helper. He lives on the inside of you. But listen, not only does the Holy Spirit indwell all believers in Christ, he fills all surrendered believers in Christ. So if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives in you. The question is, is he empowering you? How do I know if the Spirit's empowering me? How do I know if he has control? Ephesians 5.18, it says, Don't be drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. That that word, that phrase, be filled with the Spirit, is is an imperative verb. It's a command. We're commanded to be filled. And it's present tense, which means it's to be a continual reality in our life. In other words, the filling of the Spirit is not an emotional worship service on Sunday. It's 
how you live your life on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and say it's daily surrendering to the Spirit of God, saying, Holy Spirit, you live in me now. Will you take control? Will you guide me? Will you lead me? Will you correct me? Will you help me? Holy Spirit of God, I'm surrendering to your will and your way. Fill up my life. And I believe if we live in daily surrender, the Holy Spirit will fill us and empower us and guide us. And that's how we experience the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now that's the quick, quick thing about the divine helper. But these are important verses that speak of the Holy Spirit's role in our lives. So here's a promise for extraordinary living. Extraordinary promise for extraordinary living. If you're a Christian, God himself lives on the inside of you and will help you. It's pretty awesome, isn't it? But there's two more promises I want you to see very quickly. The fourth is close fellowship with God. Close fellowship with God. Look what it says in verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And look what it says down in verse 24. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. And so there's a condition here. If we want to experience a a close fellowship, an intimate fellowship with God, then we've got to be people of obedience. That's the condition, obedience. Obedience. This level of fellowship that he's talking about is only for those who obey. Because... Obedience is a reflection of your love. Look what it says in John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. So how do we show our love for Jesus? Keep his commandments, right? Do what he says. And so if you come to church, listen to me, if you come to church and you sing, Oh, how I love Jesus. But you're not living in obedience. Do you love Jesus? You're just mouthing some words. The, the true measure of love for Jesus is our obedience to what Jesus tells us to do. It's just that simple. That's how you display your love for Christ, through obedience. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, and speaking of another issue, but I think it applies to this, Ralph Waldo Emerson said about integrity, he said, Who you are speaks so loudly, I can't hear what you say. Who you are speaks so loudly, I can't hear what you say. And, and the measure of our obedience to the commands of Christ sometimes can overshadow what we say, can it? And we can say we love Jesus, but if you look at our life, who we are, we're not really loving Jesus. We're not walking in love because we're not walking in obedience. And so we need to understand this fellowship with God, this close fellowship with God. And who doesn't want closer fellowship with God, Right? If you're a believer, who doesn't want to be closer to God, right? The condition is obedience. Not for everybody, not for every Christian. This is another level of the Christian life, which leads to the next blank. There's another level of Christian living for the consistently obedient believer. Another level. And my prayer tonight is that we'll be moved and that you and I would go to this next level together. All right? Obedience contributes, here it is, to a special and tangible sense of God's presence in your life. 
Obedience contributes to a special and tangible sense of God's presence in your life. How many of you, how many of you know that God will never leave you nor forsake you? Raise your hand. Next question. How many of you sense the presence of God today? How many of you thought it? Let me say it like this. How many of you thought about God's presence in your life today? How many of you experienced this next level that Jesus is talking about? Listen to what Jesus says in John 14. Listen to what he says. If anyone loves me, he will keep... Uh, verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest, make myself known to him. Then look at verse 24. This is neat. He says, Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's... I'm sorry, verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. Watch this. We will come to him and make our home with him. Now that word home is the word monet. Everyone say monet in the Greek language. It was used earlier in chapter 14. Look what it says in in John 14, verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. Same word, monet. So the word that Jesus used to go prepare a place for us in heaven, sometimes translated mansions in the King James, is the same word that he uses here when he says, if you'll obey me, we'll come and make our monet with you, our home with you. In other words, you don't have to wait to get to heaven to experience heaven. You can experience heaven on earth. You can experience the monet closest with God if you will obey him. And so obedience contributes to a special and tangible sense of God's presence in your life. I like what Warren Wiersbe writes. He writes, As the believer yields to the Father, loves the Word, prays and obeys, there's a deeper relationship with the Father, Son, and Spirit. Salvation means we are going to heaven, but submission means that heaven comes to us. So are you experiencing that level of intimacy with God? I say that because... There are far too many days in my life where I don't experience that. I'm just busy and I'm just running through life and doing this and doing that. And I don't, I'm not cognizant of that closest with God. Or there may be a a season of disobedience in my life over some certain issue. And as long as there's that disobedience, I will not experience the closeness, the intimacy with God that he promised here in this passage. And so I don't know exactly what it looks like, what this presence consists of, this, this next level, but Jesus promised it for those who obey him. Close fellowship with God. But there's one final promise I want you to see, and we'll be through. Extraordinary promises for extraordinary living. Number one, greater works. Number two, answered prayer. Number, oh, by the way, back to obedience real quickly. Forgive me for not mentioning this earlier. And this goes back to experiencing his presence. You cannot live a life of obedience if you don't read the Bible every day. It's just that simple. So let me just go back one, let me back up one step. So if you just said, I experienced the presence of Jesus in my life in a special way, but you don't read your Bible, you're, you're not telling the truth. You, you can't, listen, you cannot obey Jesus consistently if you don't know what his, the Word says. You, you need a consistent, systematic exposure to the commands of Christ. Was that clear enough? Was that good enough? All right, okay, good. Now, here's the, the final thing. Number five, triumph over death. Triumph over death. This one little verse, I love it. Verse 19, look what he says. In the midst of all this talk about the Holy Spirit and intimacy, and verse 19 he says, 
Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, because I live, you also will live. Now, it's interesting that he says, because I live, you will live, because he's about to die, right? He's going to be betrayed by Judas. He's going to go to the cross. He's going to down the cross. So when he says, because I live, you will live, he's speaking of what happens beyond the cross. He's speaking here of his resurrection. And here's what he's saying. Because I'm going to be raised from the dead, you will have life as well. That's what he's saying. Let me say it like this. Because Jesus defeated death, we do not have to fear death. And because Jesus rose from the dead, we can triumph over the grave. But there's a condition here, all right? This promise of triumph over death is only for those who place their faith in the resurrected Lord. Remember what Paul said in Romans 10.9? He said, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God is what? Raise him from the dead, you will be saved. We have to believe in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ if we're going to be saved. We have to believe in the finished work of Christ. And so this promise of triumphing over death is only for those who've placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Leon Morris writes, After being taken from them, Jesus will live, and his living has implications for them. His resurrection is the guarantee that they will not be overcome by death. His life means life for them. The fact that he rose means that death is not the end for us. Amen? And that's a promise from Scripture. So God intends for you, and listen, has given you the resources to live an extraordinary life. And these promises here help us to understand those resources. Greater works, answered prayer, divine helper, fellowship with God, and triumph over death.